Welcome to the Waukesha Bible Church Podcast. We believe the Bible tells a single story, and at the center of that story is Jesus. If you like what you hear today, additional sermons, teaching sessions, and written material can be found on our website at waukeshawbible.org. We hope you enjoy today's episode. If you have your Bible, I would encourage you to turn to Exodus chapter 6. We are looking at verses 1 through 9. We'll work to keep it in context, its historical context, as well as its literary context. But God has promised as Yahweh, and we'll see this from chapter 6. We're feeding off of chapter 3 in the book of Exodus. But we will identify God as Yahweh. And the idea of him calling himself, self-identifying as Yahweh, is that he is the God who keeps covenant. He keeps promise. We noted that in chapter 2 when he says, I remember the covenant. He remembers this promise that he made all the way back to the Garden of Eden. And our primary text will be Exodus chapter 6 verses 1 through 9. But what does the promise entail? Well, we know that Yahweh is going to provide a seed from Genesis 3.15, a mediator, a king, a savior, who's going to rescue his people, defeat or destroy the enemy, and then restore them into the place of rest a place where the land flows with milk and honey. It is a place where God dwells, and it is in his presence that we have this fullness of joy. The completion of this promise, the fact that God is faithful to the promise, is because of the name, and his name is Yahweh. It is because of who God is and what he can do that you and I can enjoy him forever. It's so important that we always remember as to why God created us in the first place. So we know that Yahweh is a covenant-keeping God. God keeps his promise. Folks, we lean on that. We rest in that, that God is faithful to his promise. He said that if we believe that Jesus is Lord and that God has raised him from the dead, we will be saved. We are saved from sin and death. We are saved from that penalty. And then he places us into a place of rest, a place where Milk and honey flow abundantly. It is in his presence. But God is a covenant-keeping God, and he cares for his people. We'll see that in our text. In our study of Exodus, we know that God remembers his promise. God sees us. God hears us. God knows us. That means something for us today, right now, in our circumstances, our situation. And he is committed to his vision and his mission. There is a reason why you and I exist. God has this all going in one direction, and it's going to be fulfilled. There is nothing that either of us can do to stop God from fulfilling the promise. Amen? That is so encouraging to know. But I want us to be cautious when we read the Old Testament narrative. One of the dangers that we face in all of our studies when we read the text is trying to see their experience as our experience. We want to say to ourselves, self, we are the Jews, and those people out there are the Egyptians. We are the oppressed or persecuted people. And so we try to make their experience our experience. And our problem in seeking solutions to our situations, because we all want answers to our questions. We all want to be released, as it were, from our captivity. But what ends up happening is that we normalize their experience and make it ours. Yet the passage itself, the passage itself has a primary intent. The Spirit of God has preserved for us this story. Because this story feeds the storyline of Scripture. Listen carefully to this idea. God is going to complete the seed promise. He's going to fulfill the blood picture. And the primary idea of this text is who God is, who God is, is far more important than who we are. Who God is, is far more important than who we are. In 1590, William Shakespeare wrote Romeo and Juliet, a long time ago during the period of the Reformation. And inside of Romeo and Juliet, he wrote, What is in a name? That which we call a rose by any other name would smell as sweet. Well, in this case, names matter. It does matter what we call God. I sometimes mess up names. 
I sometimes call people Jeff who are Jim or Jacob who are James. But we cannot and we should not mess up God's name. God's name is Yahweh. And we will see that in our text. And how significant is this name? Well, in Genesis chapter 4, verse 26, it says, And to Seth and to him also there was born a son, and he called his name Enos. Then began men to call upon the name of Yahweh. Genesis 12, 8, Then he proceeded from there to the mountain on the east of Bethel and pitched his tent with Bethel on the west and I on the east. And there he built an altar to the Lord and called upon the name of the Lord. In Genesis chapter 21, verse 33, And Abraham planted a grove in Beersheba and called there on the name of the Lord, the everlasting God. And then in 1 Kings chapter 18, an interesting scenario where Elijah the prophet challenges the prophets of Baal. And in verse 24, Elijah says, Then you call on the name of your God, and I will call on the name of the Lord. Names matter, and God's name is Yahweh. And why do names matter? Because words matter, and words in context have meaning. The name Yahweh, and we've become somewhat familiar with the name Yahweh because of Jacob. Every time he reads the text, he refers to God as Yahweh, which is appropriate. But I will try to explain what all this means in our context as it is found in the scripture. But the name Yahweh, you have those four consonants, Y-H-W-H. That is the name Yahweh, and they call that the tetragrammaton. And the word tetragrammaton simply means consisting of four consonants. Hebrew does not have vowels. It only has consonants. The only way you know how Hebrew is read is by hearing it read. Later on, hundreds of years later, they began to give it pointing, which is called the vocabulary, or the vowel, and the vowels enable others who have not heard it to read it. But the name of God is called Yahweh. He identifies himself as such in our text, and we will see this played out. There is a name, and it is this name we desperately rush toward, gladly accept, and fully rest in. Under the First Testament, the name is Yahweh. In the New Testament, that name is Jesus. And it is absolutely thrilling to understand this truth. But let us consider this idea. It is impossible for us to fully appreciate the emotional roller coaster that the Jewish people are riding as their hopes climb in anticipation and then plummet in disappointment and despair. For decades, for generations, for hundreds of years, they are believing a promise that God will provide a seed who is going to rescue them, who's going to defeat the enemy and restore them to a place of rest. And for decades, for generations, and for hundreds of years, that promise is going unfulfilled. And now in the land of Egypt, they find themselves enslaved. They find all their male-born children killed. It's impossible for us to fully appreciate the emotional roller coaster that they were riding concerning these things. And their confidence, however, cannot be built on what they hope to see happen, but what God promises will happen. Because God shows himself to be Yahweh, the one who keeps his word. Let me begin by reading Exodus chapter 6, verses 1 through 9. We'll have a word of prayer, and then we'll jump further into our study. Exodus chapter 6, verses 1 and following. But the Lord said to Moses, Now you shall see what I will do to Pharaoh. And again, verse 1 is built off of what has preceded in chapter 5. I'll note that in just a moment. For with a strong hand he will send them out, and with a strong hand he will drive them out of his land. This is what God is promising to Moses and through Moses to the nations. He's reminding them of what he has promised. Verse 2, God spoke to Moses and said to him, I am Yahweh. I appeared to Abraham, to Isaac, and to Jacob as God Almighty, El Shaddai, but my name, 
the Lord, Yahweh, I did not make himself known to them. I also established my covenant with them to give them the land of Canaan, the promised land, the place of rest, the land in which they lived as sojourners. Moreover, verse 5, I have heard the groaning of the people of Israel whom the Egyptians hold as slaves, and I have remembered my covenant. If you've been with us in our study of Exodus so far, you will have picked up on the repeating of that language. God remembers, God sees, God hears, God knows. Verse 6, Say therefore to the people of Israel, I am Yahweh. I will bring you out from under the burdens of the Egyptians, and I will deliver you from slavery to them, and I will redeem you with an outstretched arm and with great acts of judgment. I will take you to be my people. I will be your God, and you shall know that I am Yahweh your God, who has brought you out from under the burdens of the Egyptians. I will bring you into, out from, and then into the land that I swore to give to Abraham, to Isaac, and to Jacob. These promises to that nation are 500 years old. The last part of verse 8, I am Yahweh. Verse 9, Moses spoke thus to the people of Israel. And again, the response that we're reading in verse 9 has to be laid into the larger context of this entire passage and movement. Moses took what God gave him, and he now gives it to the people of Israel, but they did not listen to Moses because of their broken spirit and harsh slavery. Remember in chapter 5, what Pastor Giles mentioned? They heard what Moses said. They believed and worship. Now they once more hear what Moses says, but they do not listen. Why? Because of a broken spirit and harsh slavery. Let us pray. Our Father, we thank you for the opportunity that it ours to have the text in front of us, to sit here publicly and proclaim the name of the Lord. We know that at that name, every knee is going to bow and every tongue is going to confess that Jesus is Lord, and it will be to the glory of God the Father. Father, today we lean into that word. We lean into that name. Give us what we need from this text. Meet us where we are. May we understand that right now you are believing and fulfilling the promises. You have not faltered. You have not wavered in completing what is true. And Father, you do see us. You do hear us. And you do know us. May we take great comfort in knowing that this is true. We thank you, Father, for these moments you have afforded us. We thank you in Jesus' name. Amen. When we read the book of Exodus, a primary takeaway is that you can't, but God can, and Jesus did. There's nothing in this text that would suggest to us that Israel is to save themselves from their situation. Are you with me? It doesn't matter how hard they try, they will never be better than what they are. If God doesn't step in, then all is lost. And every one of us ought to be able to feel that weight. Everything about the text, everything about the story is telling us that you can't, only God can, and that Jesus indeed will. But let me back up because what we're doing right now in our study of Exodus is taking a particular paragraph within a larger set of paragraphs. So let me explore for us the movement within the book proper. In chapter 1, we come to a nation that is enslaved in Egypt. Things are going horribly wrong for them, and there's nothing they can do to get themselves out of that situation in the horizontal. Then in chapter 2, you have the rise of Moses. Moses stands in contrast to what's taking place. Pharaoh says to his people, kill all the male children, throw them in the Nile. Moses is born a Levite. Moses is born, and his mother, in a sense, obeys the king. She throws her baby in the Nile inside of an ark. And God, in his providence, takes Moses and spares Moses and then begins to raise Moses up. And then in chapter 3, you'll remember for 40 years, he's a prince in Egypt. He kills an individual. He flees, and now he's in the wilderness for 40 years as a shepherd. Moses then encounters a burning bush. In that burning bush, 
God identifies himself as Yahweh. I am that I am. I am the eternal one that has always been and always will be. In chapter 4, God gives Moses signs. What I love about Moses is that he is a reluctant leader. Moses says, I can't. What does God say? I can. Five times Moses says, Lord, you've picked the wrong guy. I don't know if you've ever had those discussions with God. When God is wanting you and you're saying, you know what? I'm not feeling it, Lord. Not at all. I can't do this. And God says, I know you can't, but I can. And Jesus will. Five times. I love Moses for that. I love the the accurate documenting of failure in the scripture. It always makes me feel better about myself. Because this whole thing's about God. Then in chapter 5, so God gives them all these signs and wonders. And I'm not sure Moses is still convinced, but God gives Moses Aaron. Aaron becomes the mouthpiece for the two of them. They go before Pharaoh in chapter 5. Moses says to Pharaoh, let my people go. Pharaoh says... And what happens is that life gets much harder for the Israelites, for the Jews. Pharaoh is now calling them to make brick without straw. They then go, in chapter 4, remember what Pastor Giles mentioned, the people believed and they worshipped when Moses told them what God was about to do. Moses then goes to Pharaoh. Pharaoh then says, well, if that's the way it's going to be, and and Pharaoh flexes, takes the straw out of the brick, The people of Israel then go to Moses and say, what have you done? Our lives have not gotten easier. They've gotten harder. So Moses in chapter 5, the end of it, we'll see it in just a moment. Moses goes to God and says, hey, you said that you were going to deliver the people. So what's up? Chapter 6 then is God's response to what Moses is stating in chapter 5. And then chapter 7 are the signs and wonders the beginning of the ten plagues, and we'll look at that next week. But the intent of this entire text is really singular in nature. As it relates to God fulfilling the seed promise and completing the blood picture, this is the primary idea of this text. As it relates to God fulfilling the seed promise and completing the blood picture, who he is is far more important than who you are. That's what this text is telling us. God is beginning to continue disclosing himself to the people, saying, this is who I am. Not only am I God Almighty, El Shaddai, I am Yahweh. I am the one who keeps covenant. I am the one who fulfills promise. And you and I, no matter where we are at, can rest in who God is and what God does. Chapter 3, verse 11, when God invited Moses to lead the people out of Egypt, Moses says, who am I? God says, right, who are you? That's not the question. The question is, who am I? And that's what happens inside our text. Now, in chapter 6, verses 1 through 9, we have just read it. Structurally, this is how the passage plays out. In verse 1, there's a rebuttal or response, but it's based on chapter 5. If you look at chapter 5, the ending of it in verse 22, then Moses returned to Yahweh and said, O Lord, he uses a different name for God, Why have you done evil to this people? You said, anytime a discussion begins with you said, it's usually going to go south rather quickly. You said. There's this rebuttal or response in verse 1. God's response in verse 1 is to what just was stated in chapter 5. And then there's a reminder. And remember, God is always condescending. God is always addressing the needs of his people. God reminds Moses of what is true in verses 2 through 8. And there's a sense in which Exodus is incredibly redundant. Didn't you just tell us in chapter 3 who you are? Now why are you reminding us in chapter 6 of who you are? Why is God constantly telling us what we already know? Because you and I are always forgetting. We need constant reminder that we are inside of a larger story, a larger narrative. We look around and we are losing our proverbial minds. And why? Because we forget the story we are in. We forget that who he is 
is far more important than who we are. That's what this text is telling us. So we have this rebuttal. We'll unpack it in just a moment. Verse 1, then the reminder, here's who I am. Not only here is who I am, but here is what I do. And then finally, verse 9, the response. And there's a sense in which we ought to be encouraged by verse 9. Because Moses goes to the people, reminds them of who God is, and their response is what? They're not listening. They're not buying it. And there's a sense in which we should be encouraged. Why? Because their experience is like our experience. Well, let's look at this. We begin with the rebuttal or the response that God extends to Moses in verse 1 of chapter 6. Notice what happens here. Moses goes before Pharaoh. Pharaoh says, I'm not having it. He removes the straw from the brick. The Jewish life just got harder, not easier. Then they go to Moses and they complain and they said, we wish to God that Yahweh never looked upon us. Because in verse 21 it says, because you have made us to stink in the sight of Pharaoh. So Moses then goes to God in verse 22 and says, Oh Lord, why have you done evil to this people? Why did you ever send me in the first place? I didn't sign up for this. I didn't pull the application off the internet and fill it out. I don't want this job. For since verse 23, for since I came to Pharaoh to speak in your name, he has done evil to this people and you have not delivered your people at all. I I want to have us sense two things. First of all, it's somewhat accusatory. God, you said, you said, and it didn't turn out the way you said. And then the frustration. You know, I I cut a wide path for all these people because they've been living with this idea for decades, for generations, for centuries, and they're exhausted. Their spirits have been broken and they're Slavery is hard. And so you have somewhat of an accusatory statement made by Moses, but I think it is birthed from frustration. But notice what God then says in verse 1. But the Lord, Yahweh, says to Moses, Now you shall see. And that's really the big distinction that's going to take place when he reminds Moses of what's actually happening. Your fathers looked forward. And what they were looking forward toward, I am going to fulfill in your generation. I'm going to make good on the promise. I'm going to provide this mediator, this savior, this deliverer in the form of Moses. But now you shall see what I will do. And there's a sense in which all of us want that sensory experience. We want to see God. We want to hear God. We want to know God. We want to have this visual encounter. Well, we have that through the Word of God. And the point that's being constantly stressed is that who He is is far more important than who you are. The promises that He has extended to us, He is going to make good on. And what we see in the book of Exodus with Moses and the nation is a type or a shadow of what indeed is going to come to pass. Now watch the next several verses, 2 through 8. There are two parts to all of this. And and again, let me read it so you can see the natural division. In verse 2, it says, God spoke to Moses and said to him, I am Yahweh. And again, notice the personal pronoun, the first person. I am Yahweh. I appear to Abraham, Isaac, Jacob as God Almighty, as El Shaddai, but my name Yahweh, and now Yahweh has occurred, that name has occurred, We read several passages in the intro showing how they called upon the name of Yahweh. So what does it mean in our text when he says, they knew me as El Shaddai, God Almighty, but you and this generation will know me as Yahweh. What does that mean? But this this package of verses, 2 through 8, have two primary movements. I am the Lord. I appear to Abraham, to Isaac, Jacob, as God Almighty, El Shaddai. But by my name, Yahweh, I did not make myself known to them. I also established my covenant with them to give them the land of Canaan, the land in which they lived as sojourners, as pilgrims. 
Moreover, I have heard the groaning of the people of Israel, whom the Egyptians hold as slaves. I have remembered my covenant. Say, therefore, and now it shifts. The first part is, I want you to remember who I am. Remember who he is. Now, remember what I do. Verse 6. Say, therefore, to the people of Israel, I am the Lord, I am Yahweh, I will bring you out. This is what I do. This is what I'm going to do. They knew me as El Shaddai, as God Almighty, but you will know me as the one who fulfills the covenant, who keeps the promise. This is what I'm going to do right now for decades, for generations, for centuries. The promise was not fulfilled, and now the promise is about to be fulfilled. Now, for them, for us, it's type, it's shadow, the ultimate antitype, the ultimate fulfillment, the ultimate substance to that shadow is found in the person and work of Jesus Christ. But notice what we have here. Notice the language. Verse 6, Therefore say to the people of Israel, I am Yahweh. I will bring you out from under the burdens of the Egyptians. I will rescue my people. I will deliver you from slavery to them. I will redeem you with an outstretched arm and with great acts of judgment, signs and wonders, plagues, Passover, the parting of the Red Sea, continual provision, signs and wonders. I will do this. Great acts of judgment. Verse 7, I will take you to be my people Notice the intimacy of the language that's being used. I will take you. I will be your God. You shall know that I am Yahweh, your God, who has brought you out from under the burdens of the Egyptians. I will bring you into the land. Not only do I bring you out of Egypt, but I'm going to bring you into Eden. God completes what he begins. It's not that he simply saves us from sin and death, but he saves us for joy and glory. Getting saved is just the front end of this whole thing. Notice the language. Verse 8, I will bring you into the land that I swore to give to Abraham, to Isaac, to Jacob. I will give it to you for a possession. And why? Because I am Yahweh. I am the God who keeps covenant. So in verses 2 through 5, God reminds Moses of who he is. God's increasing self-disclosure. And then secondly, in verses 6 through 8, what I will do. God's continuing faithfulness. That which I promised to your fathers, I will fulfill in your lifetime, in your generation. But notice who I am. Who I am. And notice the language that's used throughout. We have in this text... This type of language. I appeared. I established my covenant. I have heard. I have remembered. So what's so special about this idea of Yahweh? Well, you have these two thoughts going on inside our text. You have El Shaddai. The fathers, the patriarchs, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, knew me as El Shaddai. The idea that God is powerful. God is omnipotent. It describes his nature. It's something that they foresaw, but they were not the recipients of the fulfilled promise. Now, in this context, God says to Moses, but you and your generation shall know me as Yahweh, the personal name of God. God can be somewhat abstract. God can be somewhat subjective. There are multiple people who identify a God. And that's this generic idea. But when we speak of Yahweh, we are speaking of this God, our God. It is his personal name. And he is the fulfiller of the promise. And I I find this whole idea of interest, especially as it's unpacked in the scripture. In this thing of Yahweh, Throughout the Bible, and even in in other literature, you have two names being used, or three. El, El is a singular form, Elohim, that that im ending makes a word plural in the Hebrew. But God is referred to as El or Elohim. He's also referred to as Adonai. But other things apart from God are also identified as El, Elohim, and Adonai. I'm hoping you're tracking with me. So something or someone other than the God we worship and know 
can be identified as El Elohim or Adonai. But in all of the literature that is out there, throughout all centuries, there is only one person that takes the name Yahweh. And that is this God. Only this God is known as Yahweh. This God. And there is only one other person in all of history who has equally claimed the name. Only one. So in Exodus chapter 3, and in Exodus chapter 6, God identifies himself to his people as Yahweh. I am the one who fulfills the promise, and it's going to happen right now. I'm going to rescue my people. I'm going to destroy my enemies and I'm going to restore you to the land of milk and honey. Why? So that I might dwell with you for my joy. Now, there was a degree of skepticism on the part of the people, but that is not going to stop God from doing what he does. Something else that I want us to see inside the paragraph when God identifies himself as Yahweh is that God, throughout our passage and text, is always saying, I remember the promise. I've not forgotten I remember the promise, I see your pain, I hear your groanings, I know your experience, I know you. God is always seeing, God is always hearing, God is always knowing. When we think, and all of us have had the experience, but when we think that we are invisible, nobody knows me, we're in that quiet place, we're in that dark place, and we think to ourselves, No one knows me. I must be a mute because no one hears me. I don't even know if I exist because I seem as if I am unidentified. The truth of the matter is found in the text. God sees you. God hears you. God knows you. He hears us. He knows us. Now, as a Christian... I grew up thinking the idea of God seeing me, hearing me, and knowing me was a frightening thought. I grew up singing the song, Oh, be careful, little hands, what you do. Oh, be careful, little hands, what you do. For the Father up above is looking down with love, so be careful, little hands, what you do. And why? Wham! (laughs) So you walked around on pins and needles, on the proverbial eggshell. Why? Because God is watching. (gasps) Did he just hear what I said or thought? That's not what the text says. The text says God sees you, he hears you, he knows you, and you are to be comforted by that fact. That's the truth. The entire idea of God revealing himself as Yahweh is the God who cuts the covenant. He has signed the contract. And remember... The contract he signed is a royal gift covenant. He extends all that he is and all that he does to us as a gift, and all you have to do is receive it. God will do what he promised, and the fulfillment of or keeping of this covenant isn't conditional on the recipient's behavior. I'm like, oh, thank you, God. This isn't a vassal treaty where I receive the blessing because of obedience. This is an extending of a gift that he has secured for us, and all we have to do is receive it. See, God remembers. God sees. God hears. God knows. And they're reading this text. They're hearing it all. And they're coming to understand that in the midst of their brokenness, in the midst of their enslavement, God is there. Everything about this passage... Everything about this passage tells us that God is engaged in our lives. You know, we are here right now to be reminded of that truth. We step outside this into Egypt, into Babylon, but inside of Eden, God is reminding us that he's got this. He knows, he hears, he sees. Everything about this passage tells us that God is engaged in our lives. What we cannot see does not dismiss its tangible existence. God is always working in everything. God is always working in everything. 
I've made the statement, the Spirit of God takes the Word of God and does a sure work in the people of God. And we almost make it sound as if the only people God is working in are us. God is working in everyone's heart. God is working in everyone's mind. The outcome of that working will always look different than our own, but God is not sitting on the sidelines waiting for people to respond. God is like a pesky little sibling or a persistent parent. We sit back like Moses and say, leave me alone, and what does God do? Would you please stop? Oh, come on. (laughs) This is what God does. He does not leave us alone. He will not be stopped. You and I need to thank him. We need to thank him that he overrides our so-called free will. That's all I will say concerning that matter. And God does all of this because he is a good and faithful God. He does it because he is too wise to make a mistake and too loving to be unkind. God is a faithful father who keeps his word. And God is reminding Moses of who he is. Not only does he remind Moses of who he is, but he reminds Moses of what he does. The language throughout verses 2 through 5 is carefully written. In verse 5, notice the language. I have heard, I have remembered. And now notice verse 7. I will take you to be my people. I will be your God. Verse 8, I will bring you into, I'm going to take you out of Egypt, and I am going to bring you back into Eden. This is the massive displacement of Scripture. God takes us out of Egypt, and he puts us into Eden. Every time an individual gets saved, they receive the Lord Jesus Christ as their Savior and Lord. Every time that happens... They go from Egypt, the kingdom of darkness, into Eden, the kingdom of his dear son. I am in Egypt, but I am not of Egypt. I am of this world, this citizenship. This is the promise. What's amazing about all of this is that God made a promise, a covenant with Abraham, Genesis chapter 12, 500 years have passed. That promise made is now being fulfilled in their lifetime. (laughs) This is incredible. That's why he reveals himself as Yahweh. I am the God who keeps the promise. And now you are going to see it. I'm going to rescue my people out of Egypt. I'm going to destroy the enemy, the Egyptian armies. And I'm going to restore you to the place of rest, the promised land. I'm going to give it to you. Now, this sounds like it's pretty good news. It sounds like it's pretty good. God says to the nation... This is what I'm going to do. But what is their response? Verse 9. Moses spoke all of this, and you're thinking, oh man, this is awesome. You know, I mean, I, I, I am super excited about the promise of God. I am so glad that he is Yahweh. I am so glad that he keeps promise. That is the most exciting news I could ever hear in all my life. And their response? Whatever. Verse 9. Moses spoke to the, thus to the people of Israel. And, that, you know, Moses has been beat up. He's, he's been in this journey with them. And he's the reluctant leader. And I don't know what kind of enthusiasm he might have communicated to the people. He might be an Eeyore. But Moses communicates this truth. And the people hear what Moses says. And they say, no, <laughs> we're not buying it. But why did they say that? Why did they say that? Because their spirits were broken and their slavery was hard. They had simply given up. Decades have passed and generations have been cut down and burned in the furnace of affliction. God gave a promise to provide a king who would rescue his people, destroy the enemy, and restore them to the place of rest so that they would dwell with him forever for their joy. 
And that promise was given centuries, centuries earlier. It still had not yet been fulfilled. So in my mind, their response is understandable. What they knew and felt, to a degree, in a sense, is what we know and feel. Remember in that upper room discourse of John chapter 14, Jesus said, Let not your hearts be troubled. You believe in God, believe also in me. In my Father's mansion are many dwelling places, and if it were not so, I would have told you. But I go now to prepare a place for you, and if I go, I will come again and receive you unto myself, so that, this is all Exodus, so that where I am there you may be for your joy. Decades have passed. Generations have died. And here we are 2,000 years later in an unfulfilled promise. We can understand where we might be a little bit skeptical concerning all these things. Their spirits were broken. Their slavery was hard. When the spirit is broken, belief wavers and hope begins to fail. When I was in Bible college a long time ago, they told me that by the time I get to the point of retirement, Social Security will no longer exist. They also told me that Jesus was going to return soon. He's still not here. But what am I believing? He's coming, and it could be today. It could be today. One of the reasons why we lose heart is because we don't draw our lines between what is Egypt and what is Eden. I suspect that part of our confusion is that we take our national identity and we confuse it with our Christian identity. We are always leading with, who are you? A Christian that dominates the landscape. Your national identity and your Christian identity are not the same thing. Are you able to track with me right now? One is Egypt and the other one is Eden. We see what is happening in our country, our nation, and in our world, and we bring that anxiety, we bring that confusion, we bring that fear into the church. And somehow we think that God is not ordering all of this, or that somehow we can fix it if we just do X, Y, and Z. We think that if we can get our person in office, then things will be different. But what I would encourage us always to do is to back up that train of thought and go back to what the scriptures actually say. There is an Eden, and there is a Babylon or Egypt, but those two are not the same. One day, all the earth will be Eden. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in. But that day is not today. We've got to be careful that we do not take what is uniquely theirs and bring it into what we are. We need to take what is uniquely ours and bring it out to them. I mentioned earlier that God identifies himself as Yahweh. And there's only one other place where an individual identifies themselves by that title. In John chapter 8, Jesus Christ, the entire gospel of John, reiterates this idea constantly. But in John chapter 8, Jesus is speaking with the religious establishment, and they're going back and forth, and Jesus is responding to their questions and challenges. And in verse 58, Jesus said to them, Truly, truly, I say to you, before Abraham was, I am. So they picked up stones to throw at them because they clearly understood what Jesus was saying. In the Old Testament, in the Old Testament, the First Testament, God is identifying himself by the name Yahweh. In fact, if we were to go all the way back to Exodus chapter 3, we would see that it was an angel of the Lord, which most identify as a pre-incarnate occurrence of Jesus, that Jesus is in the bush, that Jesus is speaking to Moses, and that in that passage, Jesus is saying, Moses, I am. Now we fast forward 2,000 years from Exodus 3 all the way to John 8 in the days of Jesus, and Jesus says to his audience, I am. We've gone from knowing him as Yahweh to knowing him as Jesus. 
Folks, that's worthy of an amen. What is the name of God? Jesus. And at the name of Jesus, every knee is going to bow, every tongue is going to confess that he is Lord. And all of it will be to the glory of God the Father. Folks, that message is uniquely ours. We can go out there into Egypt, into Babylon, and we can say there is a God and his name is Jesus. God the Father raised Jesus the Son from the dead. He is alive. And one day, whether they like it or not, every knee is going to bow and every tongue is going to confess that Jesus is Lord. And it will be to the glory of God the Father. His name is Jesus. And Jesus is Lord. When you look at all of this, and you ask yourselves the question, what is it all about? It all hinges on this one thing. What do we do with it? What is this all about? Well, first and foremost, when you look at the total story, when you see yourself and you seek to place it inside of this story, who God is, is far more important than who you are. And you should be encouraged by that truth. Secondly, in our struggles, in our fears, in our uncertainties, in our weakness and in our inability, we need to change our perspective. Almost every day we bow our knee, not because of worship, but because of weight. And we say to ourselves, I, I, I just, I can't do this. We have to talk ourselves to get out of bed. And we say, God, I can't do it. I, I just can't do another day. And God says, you know what? You're right. You can't. But I can. And Jesus did. Because Jesus is the fulfiller of the promise. He is the name. In our darkest moments, we have to remember that God remembers, that God sees, that God hears, that God knows is that important? Is that comforting? Is that encouraging? Absolutely. I just want someone to see me. I just want someone to know my sorrow, my weight. I want someone to hear what I have to carry. Someone does. And his name is Jesus. We have got to understand that God's got this. God's got this. And he knows exactly what he is doing and where he is going. And you and I have to lean into it. We have to learn to rest in him and his power. Now, I mentioned earlier, there's a primary idea within the text. The text is telling us that who he is is far more important than who you are concerning redemptive history. But there are four thoughts that I would share with you rather quickly before it's over. What the nation wanted and what they needed were two different things. When Moses came to the people and told them that God remembered the covenant and that God would deliver them, when did they want that deliverance? But what they wanted and what they needed were two different things. All of us have been in the place where we wanted immediate deliverance. God, you've got to do something because I'm ready to die. Not just physically, but emotionally, spiritually. I'm just ready to die. God says, I got this. Just wait. What they wanted, what they needed. And secondly, God's timing and our schedules do not always align. You know, we have busied ourselves so well that we have to fit God in. You know, if we didn't have a Sunday, we might never go to church. I say that somewhat sarcastically. But God has put in play feast days. He put in play the whole mediation system, the whole tabernacle and temple, so that you and I would not forget the story. Because what's going to happen is you're going to leave here and get swallowed up by all of that out there, won't you? You need to remember Eden. God is asking us to trust him that he is too wise to make a mistake and too loving to be unkind. We've all been, especially if we are seasoned, uh, that's how I'm calling old age now, seasoned, the longer we live, the less we know. 
And it ends up, you know, people have questions to things that we used to have answers for. Now we're just like, ah, whatever. At the end of the day, the only thing we really want to do is continue to trust him and be faithful to the end, to finish well. That's all that God is really asking of us. He's not asking if we can actually explain the, you know, the pre-incarnate Christ or the superlapsarian understanding of the created order. I don't even know what I said. God is simply saying, can you trust me? Can you trust me? Can you trust him? Turn on the news and ask yourself the question, can you trust him? And then God is simply asking us to believe that all things do indeed work together for good and that he's got this. So as we go out and get swallowed up by everything, let us remember, let us remember that his name is Jesus. Jesus is the one who keeps the promise. 2 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 20 says that in Jesus, all the promises of God are yes and amen. He will not fail in any of it. In all of this, what answer do you have? One word. Jesus. Folks, is that your final answer? Let it be your final answer. Neither you nor I need to be ashamed of saying Jesus. Let that be on our lips with our dying breath. Jesus. Jesus. Please stand with me as we close in prayer. Father God, you've given us the tax for our enrichment, for our profit. We read the story and we realize that your name is Yahweh. And then in the New Testament, we see that it is Jesus. Jesus is the keeper of the covenant. He is the fulfiller of the promise. He is the seed. He is the blood. And in him, we have everything we need for this life and in a life which is to come. Thank you, Father, for the time we have as your people to be reminded of this truth. As we leave Eden and go into Egypt, may we continue to say his name, the name of Jesus. May we take great comfort in knowing that one day, not with haughtiness, but in a way of victory, every knee will bow and every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord, and it will be to the glory of God the Father. Thank you that you are the fulfiller of the promise. In the name we pray, amen.